Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible. I'm in this place with these women. My buddy who's in charge of the trip is taking us through the slum and showing us different things. And I, I have my phone and I'm typing into it. My mind is just racing. I'm thinking, you know what someone needs to do? They need to create a business that provides jobs to women like this that pay them $8 a day, but it makes a product that is competitive. I mean, these women are working hard. These would be, be like the best employees you could imagine. And I come from a factory background. I'm like, why doesn't someone come up with a product that women like this could make? And why not, what if the, if the story of these women and the power of this job were, was shared with the consumer that's buying the product? What if? Our guest this week, Brad Jeffrey, didn't just ask himself that question while visiting a Kenyan slum on a business trip focused on finding ways to financially help those who live there. He answered the question, and it changed his life and the lives of the impoverished, endangered women he visited. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Jeffrey's answer was to found Made Free, an apparel accessories brand that competes on the world stage in design and quality while serving as a vehicle for consumers to help create sustainable change through dignified work and livable wages. Every purchase supports a day of freedom from human trafficking and poverty and moves Jeffrey further beyond his crucible of feeling that his life, running a successful family business founded by his great-grandfather, lacked the significance to leave a legacy that truly helped others. Brad, thank you so much for being here. Um, I love what you do uh, Made Free, uh, making bags and backpacks to um, really help combat human trafficking, uh, slavery and poverty. I mean, it's an incredible mission. I just the name itself, Made Free, is such an incredible name. But I want to go back a bit to your upbringing. I understand you grew up in a family business environment in the uh, Chicago area. So obviously, as listeners know, I you know can relate to a family business background. Uh, just tell us a bit about growing up and the family business in Chicago area. So what was life like for young Brad and hopes, expectations, if you will? <laughs> what was life like for you? Yeah. Well, it's great to be with you guys. I grew up with a, in a family where we were pretty entrepreneurial, but I didn't, I didn't know that until later looking back. But uh, we um, lived in a, in a pretty uh, well-to-do neighborhood, but the work ethic that my father and mother instilled in us was you basically, if you want anything done, you, got, you need to do it yourself or you need to find the resources. So I grew up in this situation was kind of unique. I was all my my neighbors and my friends were the kind of the country club kids. And if they wanted something, their parents would just buy it for them. For me, it was like, hey, mom and dad, I, I really like that new Schwinn bike that all my friends have. And they'd be like, great, where are you gonna how are you gonna pay for it? You know, and so early on they taught me that um you can go after a lot, but you have to have skin in the game. And I didn't really understand the power of that until later on in life. Uh, but that that was kind of a, a – I look back, I, that really has stuck in, in my mind of what, what it was like to be in a, in a family, family business, if you want to call it, environment. My dad was 
um, at the time, uh, owner and president, CEO of our, our family company nearby in Evanston, uh, where we lived. And it was started in 1914 by his grandfather. So my brother and I, who eventually got involved in the business, were the fourth generation. It was a specialty chemical, or still is, it's still in existence. Uh, it's a specialty chemical company that served primarily the automotive industry uh, with a product that would aid in manufacturing of metal parts and that type of thing, metal stamping industry to be specific. So I, uh, I, my dad was my hero growing up and I'm like, well, I'm gonna do what dad does. I'm gonna get involved in the business. Uh, I made that decision early on and, and um, as a child. Went to college, uh, majored in graphic design and, and art, fine arts, really got into design. And then after graduating, I became very involved in the sales and marketing part of the business, learned a lot, made a lot of mistakes, learned the <laughs> hard way, which in many cases is the only way I think to learn. Um, I'm an experiential learner. I learned so much and traveled the world, helping grow our business. Um, but I found myself in um, at a point in my life when I was in my early 40s and things were really shifting for me and, and I something had to change. And um, How many years did you spend in the family business before you made the shift? Uh, 26 years. Um, and I will add that, that we have a sister too, which she was not. Okay. Not interested in the business, and I don't think my dad was encouraging her. <laughs> okay. Seven years younger than me, too. But yeah, um, right, we had right. 20. Uh, another important thing is our dad died very young. He was uh, 54, almost 55. I was 29. I had been working in the company for six years with my brother and my father, and then he got aggressive um, prostate cancer. Mm. And uh, so that was a really significant time in my life. And so there was six years with dad and then 20 years, just my brother and I working together. So those 20 years were your brother and you, you in effect, you were the owners, the chief executives of the business. Right. It was the two of you, right? right. So how, how were those 20 years? I mean, were they like, hey, this is fun. We're in charge. Or was it like, it's a burden or was it a bit of both? I would say for the most part, it was really fun. And we really um, we saw it as a privilege and an opportunity, and we tried a lot of stuff. Fortunately, we didn't ruin the company. <laughs> we, you know, during that time, uh, this was, gosh, uh, late '80s, '90s. There was a book um, in search of excellence by Tom Peters that oh, yeah. was really popular, and it. it we read books like that. We read Inc. Magazine all the time. So we're always looking at what are the innovative companies doing? What are, what are innovative cultures in a company? And so we're always trying to do better and refine and improve the company. Doing that, we wasted some money. Some things didn't work. But in the end, we were able to keep the company going and improve the business and improve its profitability and, and grow it modestly. So I would say for the most part, my brother and I saw ourselves as equal partners. Things were doing, we were doing really well. Unfortunately, when um, the recession hit in 2008 and nine, that's when, well, and some other things happened prior to that, but that, that 
became the beginning of the end for us. So talk about, you mentioned in your late 40s, you were thinking, you know, it was almost like, is this all there is? I want to do something new. But how did that kind of line up with the 2008 recession and the company not doing well? And so you made a massive shift, but talk about how that shift happened, because it sounds like there were a number of factors that led to that shift in your life. Well, three years prior, uh, 2005, six, right around that area, I really started to shift my priorities personally. I went through a major life change where I decided just making money and being, quote, successful really wasn't satisfying. I felt an emptiness. I felt like um, I felt selfish. I felt like I really wasn't really doing anything for mankind in general or or humankind. And that just kind of gnawed at me. And I I found myself kind of dreaming about what I was going to do after work. I looked at different things, different outreach opportunities uh, through charities and churches and organizations and found more satisfaction in my time on the weekends and after work doing, I would say, outreach activities, helping people in need. And that just really fed me more than going to the office. So I was in this tough situation that led me to go do some do a retreat down in Dallas with an organization called Halftime, mm-hmm. which encourages you to really look hard at your past, your present, and your future, and what where you had the most peace and joy in your life that you could remember. What were you doing? What would you like to do differently? And challenge you to start making changes in your life. That was a profound moment right there. And those basically a day and a half is all it was down in Dallas. But that really kind of started the, that was a catalyst for changing the way I wanted to live my life. And there was a phrase that you used, Brad, when you and I talked in advance of this recording um, that really aligns with what we talk about at Beyond the Crucible all the time. You said that you did not feel like your life was significant. Right. And uh, why that hit me, the way that it hit me is that Warwick talks a lot about the the end goal of what Beyond the Crucible is about as you walk your path out of moving, moving beyond your crucible is to lead a life of significance, which he defines as a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. So when I hear you say that your life wasn't, you didn't feel like your life was significant, that's a, uh, we've discovered a common emotional experience for folks even if the circumstances of the crucible are different, the emotion of there's got to be, as Warwick put it just a little while ago, there's got to be more than this. And that seems to be what fueled you both going to halftime and I would imagine what comes after you go to halftime, right? Absolutely. And one of the questions that's asked during the halftime experience is, if you died today, how would you be remembered? What's your legacy? What would the discussions be like at your funeral? And that really was a sobering question. It was like, wow, really? And so as I as I reflected at that time on what the conversations might be for me at, at my funeral at that point in my life, I was uh, not happy with that at all. I was like, no, that, that would not be the way I would want to be remembered. 
And then you go, well, wait a minute, am I going to die today? Well, probably not. I'm healthy. I'm young enough. And I don't have any things that are hurt that potentially would kill me today, you know, unless I got in a car accident or something. But and you say, well, wait a minute, I have a life in front of me. There's another there's a second half is the way mm-hmm. half to talk about it in that time. It's like there's a second half. I have an opportunity to change that. You know, it's kind of like the Christmas Carol movie, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. right. it's like, you know, he's like, this is what your life was. And this is where it's going based on what you're doing. And it's like, but you have a chance to change that. So I love that. I love the work that Halftime does. That's, that's fantastic. So talk about when you were thinking about, gee, what would uh, my legacy be? What would be the eulogy? What did you feel it was at the time? And what did you want it to be? I believe at the time it was basically like, you know, Brad, I, he's okay guy, I guess. He's pretty decent, I guess, you know, and he, um, he was successful. He had fun. He had cool stuff. I really liked the house that he built. That was really well designed. And it was very shallow, I would say, very shallow things. And it was about me and things that I, I got for myself. It was less about what did Brad do for others. So I came back um, encouraged that I could use business as a force for good. I found other companies that were engaging their employees in, in outreach, getting into the community and doing things to help people, using their business resources to, to help the community and help others. And so um, for the next three years after halftime, we did that at the family business. We actually did all kinds of community service work. We we shut our factory down for different different days. I remember one one Friday, we shut the whole factory down and it was volunteer. We said, we will pay you to go do something, to do something else besides work today. And the factory will, we're going to go help build a house for Habitat for Humanity up the road. Everybody's invited. You'll be paid the same. You've always been paid. We encourage you to come if you'd like. You don't have to. Well, like 90% of the employees came. It was a really cool experience. And I, that was another gift. I learned that actually the most um, productive companies encourage their employees to get outside the business and do something for others. It's the best team building you could imagine. So we did that for three years. And during that three years from 2006 to 2009, we were thriving. We had the best profit. We had the lowest turnover. We had the best morale. We were most efficient. Everything was running really well, even though we were taking time away from business and I always challenge CEOs, if, if you really want a productive team, stop stop the machine for a while and go do something for somebody else. But then, then the recession hit. Um, my brother and I had our first really big disagreement. Um, I wanted to continue to do outreach, even though our business was in, was in jeopardy because of the recession. We were heavily tied to automotive. Our sales were down 40%. And it was it was all hands on deck. And I took the position of that doesn't mean we give up helping others. We disagreed on that. Short, short story is after a year, a year later, we parted ways and uh, it was over. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I, I found myself contemplating like, wow, things were going so well. 
you know, we were doing such so many cool things. We were really engaging our employees. Where I felt like we were really using business to get outside ourselves. We were we were giving five percent of our profit away, but I then I I sensed that God was saying, "Did I say stop?" I'm like, "No, I didn't say stop." It's like something's. I want you to keep going, but it's going to look different. How did Made Free? Stop. What was sort of the impetus sort of where did the light bulb turn on? Okay, we need yeah. to do this. Yeah. So prior to that, a few years prior, I became very interested in, I would call it cause purchasing, where you buy something and it supposedly helps somebody. So the first examples I could think of was you'd go into Whole Foods and you'd buy your groceries and say, hey, would you like to donate? whatever, a dollar or a couple of dollars to this homeless food fund or whatever, you know, there's TV commercials. But the one that really hit me was my daughters. I have, I have two daughters and a son and they came to me and said, Hey dad, we need to get these shoes. They're called Tom shoes. And when you buy a pair of them, another pair is given to a child in need in some poor country. So it's really good. It's really helping people. And I'm like, Really? Let me see those things. And so I looked into Tom's shoes and I realized, wait a minute, this is a for-profit company that my kids think is a charity. And this thing's taken off. I'm like, wow. At the time, the shoes cost $55 for their most basic shoe. And I'm like, these are made where? In China. They probably cost like a buck fifty to make. They're selling two pairs for $55. i am like, wow, that's some really good margin. This guy's brilliant. And so I'm 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 studying this business model while I'm seeing trends. And I'm also reading books about businesses of the future. I remember reading a book called Supercorp by a Harvard, Harvard professor, and she predicted that the companies of the future, so this was um 14 years ago. Okay. The companies of the future are gonna be are gonna be companies that tie doing good to their DNA. They're using their business skills and they're doing good in the world. And the example was IBM during a major natural disaster and how they used their technology to help with the the situation that was needed. So I was very intrigued with that. Then some friends of mine said, hey, we're going to Ethiopia and Kenya. We're going to look at micro lending, which I knew something about. And... Um, some some slums, some poverty. We're going to meet with some business leaders. You want to come? I'm like, yeah. I mean, I had all kinds of time. So I go to Africa, Ethiopia, Kenya with these guys. We were we ended up in the slum of Nairobi called Kibera. If you've ever heard of Kibera, know anything about it, it's about one square mile in size. And it's said that up to a million people live there. And there's very little infrastructure, open sewers. It's a really dark place. It's really sad. It's a, it's a, it's a homeless, whatever, encampment. So we're there and we're meeting with these women that were HIV um, positive and they were really girls. They're 15 year olds. They're, they were mothers of children and they were trying to survive. And there's this organization that was giving them jobs to try to help them care for themselves. And they're making jewelry from bones from the garbage. And I'm like, what's this? What is this? Oh, it's made from bone. And they're like, they're like making beads and things. I go, where do you, what kind of bone? 
Well, we get it from the bone factory down the alley. <laughs> so I go down the alley and find out there's these guys sitting on chairs over grinders, grinding bone into little decorative, you know, charms and things. And I said, where, where are you getting these bones? And the guy takes me over to a trash can and they had like dog bones, cow bones, whatever. It's like, oh my gosh. Anyway, so they were making jewelry and they said, will you buy our jewelry? It really helps us. We were making a good living. And I'm like, well, how much do you make? And they said, well, we make $3 a day which is really good in Cabrera. Most people make a dollar a day. So we're really grateful if you could buy our jewelry and sell it to your friends. And I'm like, I said, well, yeah, sure, I'll buy some. But what do you really need? Is, is that really enough? Three dollars. And he said, no, not really. I, I got him to admit there was basically eight dollars a day would have been the, the game changer for their life and allow them to care for themselves and their children and have decent food, clothing, shelter, et cetera which to us doesn't seem like a lot, but to them, it was, it was, it was life-changing. So I'm, I'm in this place with these women. My buddy who was in charge of the trip is taking us through the slum and showing us different things. And I, I have my phone and I'm typing into it. My mind is just racing. I'm thinking, you know what someone needs to do? They need to create a business that provides jobs to women like this that pay them $8 a day but it makes a product that is competitive. I mean, these women are working hard. These would be, be like the best employees you could imagine. And I come from a factory background. I'm like, why doesn't someone come up with a product that women like this could make? And why not? What if the, if the story of these women and the power of this job were, was shared with the consumer that's buying the product? So I come back with this idea written in my phone and I tell my friends and family about it. And my friends say, why don't you do something about it? So you saw what was needed. You're an entrepreneur, designer, sales and marketing guy. What did you do next? So I started thinking about, well, what's the product? I don't want to do shoes. That's too complicated. A lot of, a lot of skews, a lot of different you know, sizes and colors. And like, it's got to be simpler than that. I don't Another really important piece for me at the time was I don't want outside funding for this business and I don't want to give away equity. I want to maintain control of the vision. I want to keep it pure. And that's, that was a very difficult thing because I didn't really have much money. Soon after that, I met my wife and, you know, the two of us agreed on this and, and we started to pursue this, this idea, but so it made it really difficult. So I had to come up with a very simple business plan that did not require a lot of capital, met a need of a consumer. So I looked around, I remember looking around and I looked in my closet and I noticed I had five backpacks in my closet. And I'm like, you know, people just buy backpacks even though they don't need them. They're kind of a fashion statement, they're functional, but a lot of backpacks, you know, and I realized I found out that the, you know that this the sales volume of backpacks is huge, and so I I decided that okay we're going to make backpacks and messenger bags at the time and maybe a few other little accessories. So I started researching products, what's out there, and and the initial idea was, what if we could compete with the major brands that I really liked. Um, you know, think of like LL Bean and J Crew and you know companies like that, durable, long-lasting, timeless design products. 
or Orvis, people like that. What if we could compete with brands like that, but empowered people out of poverty and and also the the biggest the biggest impact was was to to prevent slavery. So and we can get more into slavery, but slavery is, is the is the main issue that we're trying to solve. Poverty slavery is, is a symptom of poverty. So I um, started just playing around. I would say failing fast, making some really bad product, trying to get someone to sew <laughs> a backpack for me. Went to try to find anybody that could stitch leather, and I ended up working with this dry cleaning small dry cleaners in the north side of Chicago that happened to be able to stitch leather. <laughs> I camped out there and helped them, you know, fashion a couple of bags. And then I, I decided uh, that India was going to be the country we we're going to work on because I, as I learned when I came back from Africa, from meeting a, a friend, India is where the most poverty and slavery is. And it is today. And it's also it was the fastest growing fashion manufacturing region as well. I took my canvas, my leather and my product designs, my prototypes, and I, I took a trip to India for three weeks trying to find. I, I'd set up nine different appointments with, with some teams that supposedly could make product. And I, I didn't want to go to factories that were really good at making backpacks because they're not paying people well enough. I wanted to pay people. I wanted them to make eight dollars a day. And the 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 average minimum wage was about two dollars a day. And it still is, by the way, in South Asia. And so I found people that had great hearts and desire, but they were horrible in business. They didn't really know how to make bags, but they told me they did. <laughs> So I'm, I'm traveling through India and all my appointments turned out to be disappointments. And as I as towards the end of my trip and I'm staying in Delhi with a friend and they're like, you know, you need to talk to so-and-so. They're actually, they're making bags and they're helping people in poverty. I'm like, really? So I went there and they actually could make the product. So we started working with them. That was the first, the first partner and we started making some some simple backpacks and tote bags. Wow. And so obviously Made Free has grown, but just talk a bit about the vision. You, you talk about combating uh, human tra trafficking and um, poverty and slavery. So uh, just explain how the difference $8 versus $3 and, you know, what's you found a good partner there and I'm sure you have others. So just talk about that vision and why your business model, almost your um, your model of helping people is different and is a game changer. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the fashion industry and, and how it's tied to slavery. So I think it's like one in six jobs are tied to the apparel and fashion industry. Huge. The um, major brands, they're paying if they're if the factories that are making the brands are legal, they're paying about two dollars a day. The way it works in the fashion industry, if you're a big brand, you go to a company that's that has the the scale and, and the capability to make you know a million pairs of shoes or whatever, and it's really a kind of a front company. They outsource the actual making of the products to secondary companies. And they create this great facade 
to the, the big brands. And they make all kinds of commitments and they, they, they agree to standards and all kinds of things. Well, what really happens is these big front companies outsource all the manufacturing and some are legal, but many are illegal. And these illegal companies are abusing people. They're paying them maybe a dollar a day and they're paying them, they're working in very unsafe working conditions. They're exposed to hazardous chemicals, hazardous processes. Buildings are not built to code. Because of this non-livable wage problem, people come out of those factories desperate, hungry, tired, not able to really get on with their lives. This is where the vulnerability transforms into slavery. Every minute of every day, someone in a, in a situation that's not making enough is approached by a stranger who says, hey, I got a better opportunity for you only to be tricked and sold into slavery. That's what's going on. And if they have a livable wage and they're empowered and they work for a quality company and they have, they have, they're in a team environment and they have care and all the good things that a good employer would provide, they're most most likely not going to be tricked or sold into slavery. And you talked to me, Brad, when we first talked again before this uh, recording, you said something to me about the breadth of slavery globally yeah. that I still can't quite shake the impact that had on me. Share right. with listeners how big globally is slavery in terms that they can understand because the way you explained it to me about that it's bigger than these companies blew right. me away still blows me away yeah so today there are 50 million slaves three years ago there were 40 million so it continues to rise it's the most lucrative business model if you really want to call it a business model of any it's second to the um to arms arms dealing Arms dealing is number one, slavery is number two. There's more money made in slavery than Google, Starbucks, and Nike combined. That is just breathtaking to hear that. And what I want to say to the Patagonians of the world, hey, you can do better. It seems like sustainability of the environment is, is more important than sustainability of the workers' lives. And this is this is where I'm I'm really passionate about it. So I I did the numbers. One thing I did on my phone when I was tour, when I was, you know, in that slum is I started to calculate, you know, whenever, before you start a business or anybody starts a business, you got to say, this is financially viable, right? It, does it make sense financially? And could you pay someone $8 and still eke out enough margin to survive? Well, when I did the due diligence, there's plenty of money on the table. Many major fashion companies um, have, have a seven X margin. Okay. Meaning they pay a dollar and sell for seven. There's plenty of money, but unfortunately the focus is about sustainability of the planet, which is great and not the workers. So the, the good news is we can do both. We can do both. We can, we, we do both. We, all of our products are sustainable. We use hundred percent organic recycled materials, um, eco-friendly. We do all the things that Patagonia is doing, but we pay 100% of our workers get paid a livable wage. Actually, more than a livable wage is like 
five or six dollars a day. We're paying eight. I know Warwick has a question. I wanted to say one thing before he gets to that question because it, it it flows from what you just said. You have on the website for Made Free, you have um, a statement that says every purchase supports a day of freedom from human trafficking, slavery, slavery and poverty through a self-sustaining job. And then you have a statistic underneath there about how many total days of freedom are provided? Here's what's interesting. You and I talked first about a month, a month and a half ago. And uh, because of your schedule, we had to reschedule this. So I printed out that page from when we first talked. And the number that you had, 99,031 total days of freedom provided. That was a month and a half ago. I looked at it again this morning and printed it out right here. The number today, just to show folks how this is making an impact, the number today, and I checked just before we got on this recording to make sure it was still accurate, and it was, 100,650 total days of freedom have been provided through the work of Made Free. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave it with this and then I'll flip it back to you, Warwick. One of the things you said as you were talking here, Brad, uh, that I wrote down, which was really uh, impactful to me, is that you asked the people you were talking to when you visited Kenya and they were telling you a bunch of things. You, you asked a simple question. Huge problem, seems too big to, to tackle, but you asked a simple question and I think we can apply that question to everything that we do when it comes to trying to help others, when it comes to trying to live a life of significance. As Warwick says, a life on purpose dedicated to serving others. Here's the question you asked that seemed to have birthed Made Free. Simple question. What do you really need? Power, power in that question. Certainly for Made Free, certainly for the women that you've helped, certainly for anybody who wants to apply it. It's got to be incredibly fulfilling but I think one of the things I heard is you talk a bit about Oscar Schindler and, you know, people are very familiar with that movie and saving, uh, you know, Jewish people from the Nazis and in World War II and hiding them and all. Talk about why in some ways you identify, at least in part, with him and some of yeah. the challenges he had. Yeah, so another important number is India is the largest populated country now, 1.4 billion. Okay. They're, they're, more, more, they're, they're bigger than China in terms of population. There are 300 million people in India that are in destitute poverty, basically homeless. So that's just under the size of the United States. So when you put it in that context, it's the number is just unfathomable. It's huge. So... You can get pretty depressed, and if you just stick this, stay there, which you know you got to break it down into something tangible. And so we're we're helping about three hundred people, predominantly females, um, with dignified work. We have three teams in India: two in north northeast Kolkata area, and one down in southern area of Chennai. And I talk to them regularly. They're very grateful for what we can do together. But at the same time, they continually remind me of that there's there's people showing up every day that need work, and they want they want us to give them more work. So it's really difficult. I do feel like at the end of the movie of Schindler's List when he says and he starts crying, he says, "I could have done more." That's where we are, and so um, we're small. Uh, we have great opportunity, and we're really. Um, we're trying to grow and share the good news, particularly with corporations. So one of our big channels, our largest channel that 
I started because it was out of a, an, a way to deal with not having funding and, and outside money was we needed good cash flow. One of the big problems in the fashion industry is you have to finance a lot of inventory and your customers pay, pay slow. So when Kickstarter took off back way back when, I'm like, wait a minute, people are paying ahead of time for stuff. <laughs> what, industry, what industry pays before they get their product? I'm like, wait a minute, businesses have conferences and events and they pre-order swag to give to their attendees and they, t- they will pay a deposit at least. So we went after that industry. So our largest customer base is big, big business. And we got an order four years ago for um, a very large order of 600,000 units. That translates or transferred into 200 jobs for women in our in, in one of our teams. The impact on their lives is just amazing. I continually hear stories of what that project meant to them. Women were literally coming to the factory because they heard about this opportunity and they are telling the leaders, uh, so it's a husband wife team and the, the, the wife runs the factory and she comes from the super poor um, outcasts in India herself. And so she has a really great story of rising up out of that for herself. And she shares it with the women. And she told me that many of the women came to the factory saying, Yesterday, I was considering killing myself, but because of what I heard about this job, I'm here and I have hope and I have, I have a new reason to live. So I'm so grateful to be here. I mean, you're providing hope to people. I mean, it may seem like 300 people, however much it is, out of a billion plus people in India does, I mean, drop in the bucket. My gosh, it feels like a grain of sand in the Sahara Desert or something. I mean, it probably feels that way. But yet you're providing hope and not just to those women, but you're providing a model, a business model that other corporations of various sizes, that it's great to try to make sure we have a sustainable planet that's important, environment uh, that is great, uh, safe working conditions, that's obviously very important. But so is giving people a sustainable wage. Sustainability needs to be more than just the environment and the planet. It needs to be sustainability of humans. And you're spreading that message that, you know, people can still make, these companies can still make a good profit, but yet they're being, you talk about the triple bottom line, they can be doing things that they can be proud of. They can be, you know, promoting what they're doing and saying, you buy our product and we give people a sustainable wage. In the times that we live in, a lot of people would say, I'll buy that product. Heck, I might even pay 12, 15% more if it gives people a sustainable wage. I mean, people will do that, I believe. I mean, you know more than yeah, I do, and, but and you know. Actually, it's, it's not even that much. So there's a, there was a study done on t shirts that if you tripled the labor cost on a t shirt, it would add three cents to the retail price. Brad, we're. We're getting close to wrapping up here, and, and I want to make sure I do something before we wrap up. And I've done this, just so you know. I've done this. This is about the 120th episode we've had with a guest. And at the end of every episode, I say a version of what I'm about to say. And truly, I believe what I'm about to say in this episode is more important than what I've said in every other episode before it. And that's this. How 
can listeners who've been moved by this conversation, how can they find Made Free online and learn more about what you're doing? Yeah, thank you. Um, the website is madefree.co, and that's important. Um, dot C-O, that's it. No other letter after that. <laughs> so that's the web domain, and that's also the Instagram handle. Um, so I would encourage people to reach out, and I'm, I'm happy to speak directly with anybody. If they email contact at madefree.co, um, I will see that email, and we can talk one-on-one. Um, we we have a challenge for corporations. Corporations spend $25 billion a year on branded swag, logo gear, $25 billion. And if we could get a portion of that, which we are doing that, we're working with some really big brands like Duracell and, and major pharmaceutical companies and Adobe and Google. And um, the more and more people think of their swag budget as life-changing, the more we can do to move this forward. Work, take it away. So Brad, thank you so much for being here. Um, it's really inspiring. I know it's easy to feel like Oscar Schindler, but you know, you're making a difference in hundreds of women's lives and you're providing a model that could have a multiplying effect of, who knows, 5X, 7X, 10X beyond what you're doing, you know, because obviously your goal is to give people a sustainable way so you want to have a profitable company, but you're okay with other companies following this model Absolutely. and providing other people sustainable wages, right? It's Absolutely. more than just made free. Happy us. But, Happy. <laughs> you know, so you're inspiring other people. So just more broadly, there may be people in business in different walks of life that are feeling like, I'm doing okay. Life is not terrible, but is this all there is? And in the prep sheet you filled out, you had some amazing comments. Like you talked about, you know, a bit of advice for people, uh, for listeners. And you said, that thing you can't stop thinking about, which keeps you up at night, that's where you'll find your passion and your way to make the world a better place. So there may be people here that feel stuck, maybe capable business folks, but they're like, is this all there is? What would your advice be to them to maybe make a shift, maybe a radical shift? It may be not the path that you've taken. What would your advice be for somebody that was in your position, I don't know, around 2008 or a few years leading up to that when you were going through a, is this all there is moment? What would your advice be to that person who's where you were, were all those years ago? Yeah, I would say it's kind of what you just, you just said, what I said earlier is that I really think about your heart's passion and try not to narrow it down to a particular trade or job. I think a lot of people go, well, maybe I should get into the insurance industry or maybe I should get into whatever acting or I, maybe I should open up a restaurant, you know, and hold off on the, the, the method of execution and just start journaling and reflecting on what you get excited about what you daydream about, what keeps you up at night, what's natural for you to gravitate towards. We're taught as children and later on in school that if you're not good at something, you should spend more time on that, getting better at that. So like, and I did terrible in school. I didn't realize I was dyslexic. I struggled in school. But I, if I struggled in math, the idea would be like, well, Brad, you need to spend more time on math. 
when in reality, that's not really good advice. We should spend time on things that give us energy that we're good at, and we will get better at those things and we'll have more to contribute to society. So that that would be the way I think about it. I have been in the communications business long enough, folks, to know when the last word on the subject's been spoken, and Brad Jeffrey has just eloquently spoken it. So until we're together the next time, please remember that we understand how difficult your crucible experiences can be. And what Brad described today was not what we sometimes have on this show as a really profound physical, uh, you know, emotional, mental crucible that's, that, that's really life-shattering. Brad's was more internal. Brad's was, my life isn't significant. What can I do about that? That's just as tough. That's also a crucible. We know how that feels. We also know, though, that those moments aren't the end of your story. If you learn the lessons from them, if you apply those lessons, if you look at things and ask questions like of other people, what do you really need? They can be the best chapter in your life because where they lead is to a life of significance. If you enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start? Our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.